0: This series is, uh, which I don't know how many weeks it'll be, probably just a couple, but um, it's entitled Jesus the Great Philosopher, Uh, and I, uh, this is not an idea that's original to me. Uh, There's a book uh, that came out recently, Uh, it's by a gentleman named Jonathan Pennington uh, that has the same title, Uh, and this won't just be like a a book report about what I read, um, although I have uh, recommended the book to everybody I've met in the last uh, six weeks. Uh, to the to the uh, to the extent that my wife is now sick of it and says, "I'm not even going to read it." Uh, she's uh, tired of me talking about it. But I have enjoyed it so much and gotten so much out of it, uh, and it has uh, changed the way that I that I think about the Lord. Uh, and I think that that knowing some of this background and thinking through it and you know getting the book and reading it if you want to uh, will enhance your view of Jesus uh, as well so um, Richard, can you maybe go to my first slide there? So when I show you this picture what, what how are all these people what are they they're they 're cowboys right We have in our culture a Um, It's a set of shorthand things uh, that make you think cowboy, right? So you see a guy in a poncho and a cowboy hat. It's called the cowboy hat, right? Like that that style of hat, you think, oh, that's a cowboy. Now, none of these people are really cowboys, right? They're uh, the two on the right are actors, uh, and then the folks on the left are models and uh, George Bush. Uh, i 'm reasonably certain George Bush is not a cowboy. Um, I'm, you know he owns a ranch i 'm sure he gets out there and, and hustles around, but he 's probably got people he hires, like actual cowboys uh to uh to handle the cattle. Um, my point here is that there there 's this shorthand that exists in our culture where people who are dressed a certain way that immediately evokes the image for us of uh, this is a cowboy, right. So Richard, can you go to the next slide? Thanks. So I'm gonna show you a set of images next, but I, I wanted to give some context. Uh, these are pictures of a place in, in modern-day Syria called Duro Europas. Uh, it's a town uh, that uh, it was, uh, was a, an outpost of a, a group of people called the Parthians. Uh, has anybody heard of the Parthians? Uh, some some of you have. The Parthians were wiped out uh, in like AD 200. Uh, they were constantly at war with the Romans uh, and then with the Persians. But this this site Duro Europus, it uh, it sat at a crossroads of uh, the the, um, the Greek civilization, of the Romans, of the Parthians, and the Persians. Like like all of them, kind of mixed and mingled, it was kind of like Cincinnati sits on the edge of Indiana, Ohio, and Kentucky. Um, And so, like all kinds of people mixed and matched and and mingled here and uh, a lot of different cultures, languages, religions, uh, in very interesting ways. Uh, It was uh, conquered uh, in around 200 AD, uh, and then it lay abandoned for, because the people who conquered it didn't want it, uh, and they just went on, uh, and so it stood empty for 1700 years until it was discovered by British soldiers in World War I. Uh, and it became one of, the most, uh, one of the most well-preserved and famous archaeological sites uh, in history, uh, because it was, it was so well-preserved. If you can go to the next slide. And one of the things that they found uh, was that there's a synagogue in Dura Europis. And it it had these amazing frescoes, uh, like paintings that were on the walls. Uh, And there was also, right down the street from the synagogue, a little little house church, right? It was literally a house that had been converted into a church uh, for these, you know, these Christian weirdos in AD 200. Uh, And that was where they worshiped, uh, and uh, studied and got together and sang hymns and spiritual songs, and they had kind of modeled what they did after what was in the synagogue. So they painted the walls of this place, and it's completely preserved. Um, and what what you see up here is are representations of. Uh, so on the left um, top, that is Moses. On the bottom. Left, that's Samuel anointing David. Uh, in the middle is the prophet Ezra, and on the bottom right are two representations of um, of Moses. Uh, he's got a different haircut in each picture. I don't know why it's weird, but apparently he got his hairstyle. Um, if you if I showed you the whole mural on the right, uh, where he's kind of pointing, uh, there are a bunch of horses and uh, like men in armor being. They're depicted as like floating. Uh, so it's the parting of the Red Sea, like the before and after of it. Um, do you notice anything about these guys? They all have on the same outfit, right? Um, it's this, this white toga with blue striping. In the right-hand corner, um, is, and it's not super visible, and it's kind of primitive compared to the, what was in the synagogue, is a mural from the house church. And it shows Jesus, uh, and I, gosh, I wish it was in better resolution and, uh, you know, I could really blow it up, but it's, it's a, a picture of the paralytic being brought in and, and healed, like the guy, the, his friends cut out the, the top of the roof and lower him down and, and Jesus heals him. And if we focused in, Jesus is in that same outfit that the Old Testament prophets are, that Moses, Samuel, and and, uh, Ezra are in. Uh, And to us, that's meaningless. It's like, oh, well, maybe that's how they depict prophets, or maybe that's that's what people wore. Uh, Maybe it's comfortable, you know. Um, But if we were to go down the street uh, or to anywhere in the ancient world around that time, we would see that that was the dress of a philosopher. That's how philosophers were depicted. So to these early Christians, they understood Jesus, you know, they understood him like we understand him. Ransomer, king, sacrifice, God, all of these things. But part of their, the, the bundle of concepts that they carried around with them about Jesus was that he was a philosopher. It was extremely important, to, right? That that's, the, that's how they depicted him in their art. Um, so you say, well, so what? Right, like what's, what's the point of, of knowing that? Well, I think we have to start first by talking about what philosophy meant to ancient people because it's very different than what it means to us. Um, so if, if somebody, um, if you were introducing yourself to someone new tonight uh, and you, you know, what's the first person, uh, what's the first question you usually ask people? You usually say, hey, what's your name? And then what, what do you do for a living? Uh, and if the answer to that question that came back at you was, well, I'm a philosopher, right? Well, you, you might have several thoughts, right? One of them, it would be, this, this guy's a weirdo, right? Like, what? what? Um, another might be, how do you make any money at that? Another might be, oh, you, you must teach at the university because virtually the only thing you can do with a philosophy degree is teach philosophy. Um, the image that we get uh, in our modern context of a philosopher is somebody who debates questions, you know, that nobody really much cares about. Um, I took a philosophy course when I was in undergrad, um, and we read an essay that I still remember because I, um, I thought, what, what's the point of this? Um, and it is by a guy named Thomas Nagel. I, I still remember his name. That tells you how, how, uh, how impactful this was. The name of the essay was, um, what it is like to be a bat. And uh, the point of it was, uh, uh, if, if you wanna know what it's like to be a bat, you as a human can't know that because um, all you can do is imagine what it would be like for a human to be a bat. So it's, it, that's not the same as the experience of being a bat. And I read that and I thought, I understand what he's saying, but I don't know why anybody would, I don't know why it's worth saying. Why would anybody spend their time on this? Well, to ancient people, um, it, th- that's not what a philosopher was. Uh, a philosopher was someone who created or, or uh, proposed a life view, uh, an idea about how you ought to live uh, and that it has four components that i 'll talk about in a minute, but um, there were whole schools of philosophy, like a, a philosopher would um, announce his philosophy to people, he would talk about it, he would gather around himself uh, like minded people who wanted to learn from him disciples that's that 's what a disciple is it 's somebody who comes and learns from a philosopher who 's propounding an idea uh, or a, a, a concept of a way to live. He would go to places and debate with other philosophers or people who had questions, and people, what, people might ask him questions, and, and he would respond to those and uh, kind of draw out the implications of what he was talking about. Uh, many philosophers spoke in parables, right? So somebody who gathers followers together and travels about telling parables, um, teaching people, um, and talking about a new way of life. Does it sound like anybody we know? Right? So you can see why, the, why, the, why these ancient people would say, well, Jesus was a philosopher, right? He's, he's all of these things that we talk about, but he's also somebody who is articulating an idea, um, a, a worldview, uh, a way of living. Um, so that's... Uh, what we're gonna talk about over the next you know, week or couple of weeks um, is that, that ancient concept, that called to them, right, in this, this enormous way, the idea that Jesus wasn't just somebody who, I say wasn't just somebody who came to die for our sins, right, and rise again. Um, he was somebody who came to tell us how to live, right? How we should see and think about the world uh, and then how we should react to it and how we should live our lives so that we have, um, it, so the, the aim of all philosophies, uh, I'm going to make a big statement, the aim of all philosophies is to find the good, right? Think of the good, right? It's, well, what is it like to be flourishing as a person? Right? What is it like not just to be happy, but to be a fulfilled and integrated person? That's what philosophy is about for these ancient folks. Um, and so the idea is, well, Jesus told us, right? He told us how to be flourishing, how to be blessed. Um, so that's what we're going to talk about uh, over the next few weeks or next couple weeks. Um, so any philosophy in the ancient world uh, has four components to it. And these, I can describe these using 50 cent words, but I'm not going to um, because what's the point? Uh, the, uh, first of all, it has um, a, a, a component that talks about existence. Both the things that you can see and the things that you can't see. So big questions. How did the universe start? What, why are we all alive? What's the point of life? Right? Those, those kind of huge, big questions. You can think of it that way. Um, the, the Greeks talk in terms of physics and metaphysics. So you have like philosophers who talked about kind of scientific things like what's, what's the earth made of? What's the, what's the universe consist of? How do, how do you do medicine? That kind of thing. But also like how was life made? Well, why, why do people exist? Why are people not animals? Like the, the, those kind of huge questions uh, the second component is knowing. How do people know things? And th- this sounds really, really stupid probably uh, until I get into it. Um, but the idea is what, um, how do we understand and know things? Uh, and, and why? Why do people think? Third is ethics, right? Like how are you supposed to act in light of the way that you think the, the universe is organized and what you know? How, how, what are the, um, how can you answer an ethical dilemma? So this, think about Jesus and think about the way that he, um, he answered many, many of the questions he got asked were ethical questions, right? Like uh, when the Pharisees confronted him and they, they gave him this ridiculous um, this ridiculous uh, hypothetical scenario where they say, well, what if, what if a guy marries and uh, then he dies uh, and, they don't, and he and his wife don't have any children? The law says that he ought to marry, um, that he ought to marry her brother or his brother uh, and then she does that and then she doesn't have any kids with him either and then you, know, you progress kind of to the point of absurdity where she's married all seven of this guy's brothers uh, and they say, well, wh- whose wife is she uh, in the last day when they're all resurrected? And then Jesus has to think through the implications of that, right? Um, it, that's, that's an ethical question. Like, what, how are we supposed to live? Um, and you can think of many others, right? They ask him, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar? Uh, and he says, well, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. That's an ethical decision or an ethical idea. Like, this is how you should act. Uh, and then finally, politics, um, a hot topic in this, this, uh, this season, right? Like, and that's how do we act as a community? Like what, what should, how, how should what we know about the universe uh, and how, what we understand uh, and how we act individually. Uh, how should that impact what we do as a, as a group? We're going to talk about all of these things uh, and kind of what, what Jesus's philosophy was with respect to all of them. Um, so probably some of you are like, why are, why are we doing this? Like, what's, what's the point of this? Well, I, I have a couple of reasons for that, and a couple of reasons I'm, I'm, I was uh, really impacted by the book and why I wanted to teach um, Kind of this idea, I think uh, there is a hole uh, in the church, not our church specifically, but churches in general. Um, I ministered to and taught uh, uh, I call them kids, but they're you know young adults at the um, at the college and career sort of level uh, for many years in this church uh, and I have it's kind of scary, but I have a kid who's sort of reaching that age myself right now, uh, as some of you do. Uh, and then, you know, of course, I grew up in this church, um, and I can tell you uh, that the pattern is almost invariable, right? Kids, uh, they grow up in church, they, uh, they're very involved in the programs, they're very, um, you know, they, they hang out with friends here, they're super involved, uh, and then Uh, They reach a point where mom and dad aren't telling them to come anymore. Uh, And they go to college or they get a job uh, and suddenly you don't see them anymore, right? They fall out of church. Um, And it's not that they weren't believers. It's not that they don't believe now. It's that uh, I think uh, churches in general do a pretty poor job of teaching that Christianity is a whole life philosophy. It's about how you're to live your life and be integrated in everything that you do, right? Christ has something to say about every aspect of your life. Uh, It's, I can count on probably two hands, but no more. The number of people who grew up in the the teen class with me uh, and still go to church at all. Um, and again, it's not that their faith is, is less, than the, uh, less than the people who remain. It's not that they, um, uh, it's not that they, they didn't believe in the first place. It's that at some point w- what we teach here became irrelevant to them. And it's because uh, oftentimes as uh, in our, our culture, our, our, you know, our church culture, our, our evangelical ch- culture in general, we don't emphasize Jesus as propounding a whole life philosophy. Uh, I firmly believe that. So that's one reason. And the second is, I, I think there's a hole in our theology. Um, we talk a lot uh, about Christ as our risen Redeemer, right? Think of, of uh, the, the songs that we sing. Uh, think of the way that we, uh, we preach and teach about Jesus. It's so often about... Um, his work on the cross as redeeming us from sin and his work uh, you know, emerging from the tomb as defeating death. And, and that's true, that's not, it's not an untrue thing and, and we should focus on it. Um, but we're often, uh, I think, very worried about what will happen to people when they die. We'll, we'll, uh, right, the answer we always ask, or the, the question we always ask is, do you, do you right now know Uh, where you would go if you died tonight that's a question we often ask when we're evangelizing Um, and when I read what Jesus has to say um, I I don't find him asking that question very often Uh, what I ask him what I see him asking is not uh, are you going to go to heaven when you die I I see him asking are you going to bring heaven to earth while you live Right, that, that's, that's the issue, right? That's the, that, that's the point that he is making in, in almost everything that he does is, uh, and we'll talk about this in a moment, is how, how are you gonna bring heaven to earth right now? Uh, I told Tony earlier that I was, um, uh, it's weird to say that you enjoyed a funeral, uh, but I did. Um, Mrs. Denoff's funeral, I thought, was uh, really touching uh, and kind of amazing. Uh, and, and it was for this very reason uh, that n- nobody got up here and talked and talked and talked about how she died and went to heaven. Everything that, we, everything that was set up here was about how she brought heaven to earth, right? How people who knew her knew that there was something different and how they glimpsed Jesus through her. I can't think of a better, I can't think of a better testimony than when I was around that person, I felt like I got a glimpse of heaven. That's what people ought to say about us as believers. I can't think of anything sadder than, um, well, I think he made a decision when he was like 20 and he, he's you know, 80 years old and he passed away. And I, you know, I think he made a decision back then. Well, if he didn't make, if he didn't make people feel like, like they were seeing heaven through, through him, I don't know, right? I mean, that's the, <laughs> that's the question. Um, so uh, with that, I, I want to read what I think is the Constitution, uh, or the, is Jesus' biggest contribution to philosophy. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and we're going to go through it, but um, to, to me, uh, this is Christ's manifesto, right? It's where he's talking about what the kingdom of heaven looks like. See, when, when he was teaching on earth, he often... Uh, used that phrase, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, and he would talk about what it was going to look like, right? And and it looked a lot like what the prophets talked about in Ezekiel and Amos and Isaiah, right? It's a a place where justice rolls down like water, according to Ezekiel. I always like that phrase. Um, It's a place where everything sad comes untrue. Um, It's a place where Love never has to deal with grief. And joy is never pierced with sorrow, right? It's, it's a place of undiluted love and joy and light. He talks about it all the time, right? And it, it's in the future, right? It's far away. It's in the future. But as Jesus talks, it becomes now, right? He's saying the kingdom has, is not, it's not coming it's not after you die. It's not in the future. It's here. It's present right now in our midst, right? And you, you say, you look at all the suffering and evil in the world, and you start to wonder, how could that be? Well, what he meant is it's in you, right? <laughs> like you are supposed to live your life according to a philosophy that, that presents the kingdom of heaven to people and makes them feel like that far distant reality is here now. The kingdom of heaven is an invasion from the future, right? it's, it's the life of the kingdom in you making itself abundant in the lives of other people. Um, so, uh, and I, I always, can, those of you who've heard me teach have heard me tell this, this boring story before, but I'm going to tell it anyway because I like it. Uh, and it's a real contrast with the way that, that Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven. Uh, so Alexander the Great. Uh, The greatest general who ever lived. Um, You've all heard this story, right? Because you've heard me teach. So you're, okay. Don't zone out, please. I love it. Um, This is the greatest general who ever lived. Uh, When he was 33, he reached the the oceans of India further than anybody had ever gone before. Um, He conquered India, right? From Greece. Uh, And he collapses on a rock and he starts to cry. Uh, and his men come to him and they say, Kyrios, Lord, what's wrong? And he says, I've conquered the whole earth and I'm weeping because the gods made only one, right? He wants more, always more. So he's dying and conquered Babylon uh, of dysentery, probably. Uh, and uh, his men ask him, who, who will rule after Because it's very clear he's going to die. Who will rule after you, they say. Uh, and uh, he's, he's clearly dying, and they say, will it be your son? His son hadn't been born yet. His son was still in the womb. Or, or will it be your brother? His brother, Philip, was, uh, we, we would think of him as developmentally handicapped. Um, or, or will it be one of us? And uh, his dying words were, to kratistos, to the strongest. Whoever's, that's the way of the kingdoms of the world. Right? That's the way that the earth expects things to operate. Power goes to the strongest. Uh, I, kind of hilariously, that there was a general named Krataros who wasn't at the meeting. Uh, and he said, well, Alexander must have said my name. And the others were like, no, he totally said to the, strong, <laughs> to the strongest. It goes to show you what my boss always said, which is that the world belongs to those who show up at the meetings. Um, right? You've got you to be there or else you're going to miss out on your opportunity. Um, I, I say this and tell you this story because it's a contrast to Jesus. The world into which Jesus was born thought that power should go to the strongest, whoever can win. Uh, and if we think about it, right, that, that's how the world operates now. And that's true whether you want it to be or not right? The, the acquisition of power and strength is the most important thing in the, in the lives of most people, what, whether they would articulate it that way or not. But Jesus has a different way. So let's turn to um, the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapter 5. Uh, as I said, this is a manifesto. It's, it's Jesus uh, declaring what the kingdom is like. And he says, or in, so verse 1, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, The word blessed here is makarios in, in Greek. You can also translate it flourishing or good, right? Um... Keep that in mind as we talk about philosophy next week, right? If, if the, the purpose of philosophy is to teach you how to flourish. And, and the word that he's using here is you will flourish if you are poor in spirit. Verse 4 uh, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. And whosoever shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven." So, I, I wanna, we're gonna get into this a little bit next week, but I wanna focus on the, the, what scholars call the macarisms or the, the blessing sayings here in the first, uh, first few verses, right? If, you, if you're thinking and living in the system of the world, Right where victory and power and prestige and gain go to the strongest, right? Tokratistos. This will read to you or parse out to you as nonsense, (laughs) right? What? Who wants to live in a kingdom with the poor in spirit in the morning uh, and uh, the you know the pure in heart? wants that? Sounds like a kingdom of sad sacks. In fact, there's, a, a, there's a, an interesting book called Kingdom of Nobodies that's, that's, uh, that explores the, the Sermon on the Mount. If we went and read in Luke, you would see that the theme of Luke, that whole, the whole book, is about reversals. It's about the idea that the kingdom that Jesus comes to preach is filled with refugees and immigrants and poor people. Right? That's where Jesus starts. Not, he's not born in a palace, right? he's born in a manger. We just got through, with the, through the Christmas season. The, all of the, the blessing statements are a, a manifesto that says this kingdom is not like any kingdom that can exist in the world. Right? It's, a, it's a future kingdom that is filled with People who are mourning, but they're comforted. People who, are, who hunger and thirst after righteousness in the present age, and then they're filled. It's filled with people who are merciful, which Alexander would have seen as a flaw, right? Um, but they obtain mercy because of their attitude, right? It, it's filled with the kind of justice and light and love that's foretold by the Old Testament prophets uh, and then brought forward into the present time, right? Because this isn't just about that future kingdom. He's not saying one day, one day these things will happen to you. He's saying live, live right now like it's happening, right? F- Fake it till you make it. <laughs> live right now like the kingdom is here because it is in the form and person of Jesus Christ. And when you do that, people will understand what, what that, they'll, they'll catch an echo of that future kingdom and they'll be drawn into the light and love and light that you bring with you. So um, I'm actually going to stop there because I, I could get on to the, the four categories that I talked about, that is existence, knowledge, ethics, and politics, but I, I kind of want to, I don't want to leave off in the middle of one of those. Um, I hope this is somewhat useful to you. Um, it's about... It's about big ideas, necessarily. Um, but those those peop, those early Christian weirdos in Duro Europus, the guys who who thought we should we should draw Jesus on on the walls of our home where, where we worship, the, those people, this meant a lot to them. This idea, right, that Christ was he was articulating something different, he was saying something different to them than they could find in the world. There's a reason that Christianity continues to exist 2,000 years later, right? It's because we are different. People can detect that. They can understand it.